This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. And welcome to this week's episode of the MDT Podcast. I am Dr Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician in Surrey. And I'm Dr. Joe Preston. I'm a consultant geriatrician in London. And this week we are talking about the idea of well-being as we age and well-being in older life. And we're going to talk about some of the interventions that we can do in midlife that may promote later life well-being. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the importance of the default mode network in neuroscience. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that is. Yes, which is good. Which is good. It sounds complex. It does. It is. And we're going to talk about the role of occupations and positive engagement for well-being in later life. And we'll explain what that means a little bit later on. So by the end of this episode, we want you to be able to use meaningful and favourite activities with people to promote health in later life and also to prevent occupational deprivation in later life. We want you to have an increased knowledge of the flow type activities and occupations to increase participation in activities and creativity and to appreciate that humans have evolved as creative beings and by not doing this, we can become unwell. So we've got some people in the studio with us to help with this today. Um, my name's Tracy C.K. I'm a senior lecturer in occupational therapy at the University of Brighton. And Tracy is on our MDT faculty, so you'll have heard her name mentioned quite a bit in the previous episodes that we've talked about. My name's Gaynor Sadlow and before I re- semi-retired, I um, was Professor of Occupational Science at the University of Brighton. And now I have a visiting professorship at the University of Charles University in Prague, where I try to help them with their, these ideas that we're actually talking about today. But before we get on to that, Joe, what have you spotted from Twitter, social media of interest this week? So it's been quite difficult to pull out some things uh, from Twitter this week, mainly because we're recording this as we're going into the general election. If you're listening in the future interesting i don't know yes. what's going to happen yet twitter has been swamped it's been swamped think, yes. with politics so it's been quite difficult to find some things um but i found a survey uh, that was done with critical care nurses and physicians about delirium management oh yeah uh, yeah and i thought it was quite interesting because they were looking at uh who felt more responsible for it um, and what they did so kind of different areas so it was in german-speaking countries but they found that the majority of clinicians were reporting that they were screening for delirium when it was suspected about 50% were using validated tools. Actually, in this, um, nurses were more likely to report screening than physicians. They said some of the barriers that they, they were coming across into implementing delirium uh, kind of pathways and structures were lack of time and missing knowledge about delirium and its assessment. Interestingly, physicians were more likely than nurses to suggest early removal of catheters and also to suggest daily interprofessional goals for patients. Oh, really? Yeah. That's quite interesting. Yeah, which I, I, I would have thought it was the other way around. No, just interestingly, we're about to put um, two um, occupational therapy s- uh, students into critical care in our local hospitals oh. as a diverse placement to look at interprofessional goals. So uh, that's really exciting to hear that Excellent. piece of news. So that was from uh, Nurse and Critical Care Journal. We'll put the link for that in the show notes for this episode. Yep. And what did you read? So I found uh, an infographic... You know, we we quite like infographics. So this was an infographic called 10 Ways to Be More Mindful at Work. 
And I just thought kind I of would... links into the well-being does. kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk yeah. yeah. Um, Mindfulness and flow, you know, very interesting constructs mm. for both, yeah. Just pull, thought mm. I'd pull out two, two things from this, sort of a top mm. ten tips, really. The first one that I thought was relevant to all of us, uh, me in particular, is to be a single tasker. And the idea that no one can actually multitask and your brain madly switching from one thing to another is is tricky so just do one thing and then finish it and then move on to the next thing on your very long list of things um interesting because i i think i'm more effective when i have at least four things on the go yeah but do you don't you find that you finish one bit and then move on like you don't do a bit of something and then move on and do a bit of something else and a bit of something so if you're sending an email you don't get halfway through writing it and then yeah, move on and yeah, send yeah, another yeah. one yeah i do yeah. <laughs> so some of the others are things like being consciously present, using mindful reminders, using short mindful exercises at work. Uh, and it says that even one minute of consciously connecting with one of your senses can be classified as a mindful exercise. So you don't actually need to close your eyes. You don't even need to be sitting down. Take any particular just... time out. Yeah. Interesting. So I thought that was good. And that sort of links a little bit in with what we're going to talk about today. And we're, we're talking about the idea of well-being. Yes. As ever, we're going to start with the definitions. So simply put, uh, well-being is a state of being comfortable, healthy or happy. Um, but the definition is tricky and it is different from quality of life. Mm. And I think well-being is something that's multifaceted. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a combination of physical and mental well-being. I think that balance is important. And the Institute for Public Policy Research in 2009 identified five essential elements of well-being mm-hmm. as being... Resilience, independence, Mm -hmm. health, income and wealth, and having a role and having time. Mm. I think through our discussions today, we'll we'll draw on a couple of those, I think. We're not going to go through all Mm. five of them, but um, you'll see our discussion. I think we'll we'll sort of flit around some of those. Mm. Obviously, the long-term management of population well-being is going to be quite a complex mixture of public health things, societal and cultural norms, as well as individual actions. And I think it's important that there's some studies, and a particular study from 2002 by um, Strawbridge, uh, Wallagan and Cohen, that looks at different definitions of well-being as we age and makes the point that actually as professionals, we may have a different view to what is well-being from what our patients or clients think. In this study, they had 867 participants aged between 65 and 99. Yeah. Quite a range. And they looked at two different definitions of successful ageing in the prediction of well-being. And they use a kind of classification, didn't they? Yes. So the first was a self-rating scale. Yeah. Do you feel well? Do you feel healthy? And then the second was Rowe and Kahn's criteria, which talks about the absence of disease, disability and risk factors. Things like maintaining physical and mental functioning Mm -hmm. and being active or active engagement with life. And what was interesting is that the percentage of people that rated themselves as ageing successfully was 50%. But if you use the validated criteria, it was only 18%. Although the absence of chronic conditions and maintaining functioning were positively associated with successful ageing in both definitions, many patients with chronic conditions and with functional difficulties still related themselves as ageing successfully. Mm. May I just add a comment to that? I mm. think it's really interesting that um, 
Um, and in fact, we had a student who did some similar kind of research in a way to say to show that actually, when you're if you, if you become more disabled, you can actually you actually do things more mindfully during the day because you have to. And um, people reported improved quality of life sometimes, along with their increasing disability. I think that's really interesting. That's yeah. something that I think we mm. we often forget um, within the wider MDT mm. as we're working with people. There was a Lancet article published in 2015 called Psychological Wellbeing, Health and Ageing that talks about three different methods of Mm. evaluating wellbeing. And they are life evaluation, hedonic wellbeing and eudaimonic wellbeing. So we're going to talk through each of those now. So life evaluation first. So that refers to people's thoughts about the quality or goodness of their life. Mm -hmm. So it's their overall life satisfaction, sort of how happy they are with their lives. And there's various measurement scales that you can use, but essentially it's like a, a step ladder. So at the bottom rung is the worst possible life you can think of, and at the top rung is the best possible life. Mm. So hedonic well-being? That refers to everyday feelings and moods. Uh, the idea of sort of sadness or anger or stress is being measured, and you use that by getting people to name adjectives, okay. such as happy, sad, angry, that, that's, that sort of thing. And finally, the eudaimonic. So that's the focus on judgments about the meaning and purpose of one's life. It's getting a bit deeper now. Yeah. And there's a, an important distinction between the different types of well-being and the cognitive processing that's required. Mm-hmm. The As we went through those, that as you said, they get more complicated and require more cognitive processing to be able to answer the questionnaires and the questions. And the study basically showed that well-being is really important and that... Um, if you take that last category, the eudaimonic well-being, if you feel well on that front, actually it's associated with a longer survival. Um, so 29% of people in the lowest well-being quartile died over the average follow-up of eight and a half years, compared to only 9% Which is in really the interesting, quartile. isn't it? Yeah. And that was from the English Longitudinal Study of Ageing, the ELSA. Yeah, and that was independent of age, gender, yeah. um, and baseline mental and physical health. So this yeah. is something about yeah. your actual mindset and your and well-being. that's an absolutely huge yeah. database of people, isn't it? It's wow. thousands mm. and thousands of people that mm. they follow for, for quite a long time. Mm. One of the things they conclude, that the well-being of older adults is a really important objective for both economic and health policy. So not just in the medical era, but kind of looking at every area, really. And for the rest of this episode, we're going to do things a bit differently. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear from two or three people, yeah. about what well-being means to them. And then we're going to have a discussion with the people of us around the table yeah. about some of the underlying theories um, behind that. Yeah. So this is the first clip that you're going to hear. Mm-hmm. I don't think you feel old if you feel, if you, like anybody would say, if they feel reasonably well, you know, if they, they have a reasonable amount of energy and, and, and quite enjoy what they're doing and so on. What you... Uh, slightly worry what when you get older what you slightly worry about is uh now will i still be like this in a few months yeah. time or uh in other words is it, is it a bit transitory now at the time when you're in quite good mood and quite good shape then you don't feel old uh, and you you just don't feel any different i think one of the things that was really interesting there was he was talking about that thinking about getting older mm. and wanting to sort of maintain oneself as you get older. Mm. And I think one of the things that we can think about is 
midlife activities that we can do that that will promote sort of wellness in later yeah. life. And we talked a bit about this in the dementia episode. Yeah, we did at the end of the second series. Inter- uh, interventions in early dementia. In early wasn't dementia, it? yeah, talking about um, the the effects that exercise can have on cognition earlier in life. Um, and the World Health Organization Active Aging Policy Framework um, kind of mirrors that really and says participation in regular moderate physical activity can delay functional declines um, and the onset of chronic diseases in both healthy and chronically ill older people. Yeah, so I think that uh, what's really interesting about the, I mean, people generally in the population, we are getting more more evidence, aren't we, that exercise is important for our future health. Mm-hmm. And also people know that um, nutrition is really important for our health. Those messages, I think, have gone out there. Um, From our perspective, um, another thing that's really, really important for well-being and health is the person's deep engagement of occupations or activities that they really love. And although we kind of know this and we know that people, you know, more activities are being promoted now as well. But we I don't think we understand completely how it works. And I think this is our area of study, mm. trying to understand in what way it makes us feel well mm. when we're deeply engaged in an activity that we love to do. And it's so, focused on meaningful activity, isn't it? It's the that's sort of term it. Well, we use. Things that we love to do, really, in a way. We enjoy doing. And you were saying on the way up here, that's where the whole word occupation from occupational science sort of came from, was that that... Yes, idea of I mean, the, taking over the mind. Yes, interestingly oh. enough, the, it's the centenary of occupational therapy this year, and in fact, a few months ago. And um, I've been studying why it was called occupational therapy in the first place. And it does seem to be that people observed a hundred years ago that when people are deeply engaged in, the, especially in the arts and crafts, which was um, of that period, the arts and crafts were for, formative in the formation of occupational therapy. Mm people became calmer. Say people were in the long-term tuberculosis clinics and they would have actually gone completely mad if they hadn't had creative activities to to keep them so-called mm. occupied. But So that's the really, the really interesting thing. What is happening in the brain, for example, when we are so-called occupied? Because yeah. the word occupied actually means to seize and take over. So it means like the occupation of territories, for example, we occupy a room. When when our mind is occupied by an activity that we love to do, it seems to be healing. Mm. And that's actually exactly what the that policy we were talking about says, is exactly what you've just been saying, is active living pr- improves mental health and also promotes social contacts. And being active helps people to remain independent for as long as possible time and even can reduce their risk of falls mm. and so many things. Mm. going into the future so there's lots of economic benefits there that people are physically and mentally yeah. active and that medical costs are substantially lower for people who are active as well yes i think of particular interest um to us all is this idea of the flow state um mm. that has was kind of named and framed by the positive psychologist chick sent me hey in the 1960s in america he's a positive psychologist and um this is that state that we all can relate to when we're, as I was saying, deeply engrossed in activity. You know, what we have to think of the last time we kind of time flew or that we, our subjective perception of time changes. When, we, when we've been in a, an activity that we think, oh, heck, that time has really gone quickly, that's, when we, that's a kind of a sign that we've been in flow. Mm. Now, flow is it's of great interest to us because 
it's called optimal human functioning. Well, why wouldn't we want all of us in yeah, middle age, any age, why wouldn't we not all want some kind of to be in experiencing as often as we can really optimal human functioning or, you know, that time when we feel really ourselves. People report feeling really good after a flow experience. And I guess as you get older, as we were saying earlier, you've got um, more time to enjoy these activities. Exactly. That I mean, one of the advantages choose. of retirement or older age could be that we have more time to do the things we've loved. On that note, let's have a listen to the second little clip that we're going to play you. Someone talking about some of those things as, as she's getting older. I've done more swimming than I did when I was much younger. From the age of 50... I had, well, it wasn't that I had more time, it's just that I joined a swimming club. I started training sort of five times a week, um, heavy training with a coach. And then I went to swimming competitions all over the country and then all over the world. I was first in 200 breaststroke in the, in the master swimming, that's the world masters. That was in, in, in Casablanca when I was 60. When I was 61, I was second in the 200 breaststroke at the Europeans. It became a, a lot of my raison d'etre, to be honest with you. But I didn't, don't think I had a gap. I, have, I always left, led a very full life. It was, I wasn't just swimming. I was doing other things as well. I was um, going to art sessions. I, mean, I don't mean painting. I mean poetry, paintings, all those kind of things I used to do. Yeah, well, there's um, a lot of interest these days in the, in the research into the arts and health. There's a big um, organisation in London, of course, called Arts and Health. And there's an increasing research into the why participation in arts itself. And basically, of course, we are a creative species, aren't we? We're, we're designed, we're an amazing species in that way. We're, we've got imagination and we've got, you know, we're bipedal and fabulous hands. We've got a huge brain and imaginative and, and we're, we're kind of designed to, to do creative activities. And therefore, I think a lot of us don't really appreciate how much we could be using the arts more Mm. Music, for example, there's a lot of research in music which is showing how it promotes brain health, for example. So what's, um, I've, you know, it's of great interest to um, look at this in more detail and especially uh, relates in a way to flow because when we're deeply engaged in a creative activity, we do seem to, one of the main symptoms we seem to feel is we, we kind of forget ourselves. People report, oh, I've forgotten myself for a little while. And it's quite interesting, like people say also, for example, why do I sew? I sew to forget myself. Um, one of our research people said, it's not quite hypnotic, but it kind of, that's the feeling you get. And one of our participants said when she was doing a creative activity, well, it's better than Valium. <laughs> and it seems to have, when we're participating in creative activities, it seems to calm us in some way. So I've been looking at this in particular, and it's this particular aspect of self-forgetting that's really interesting. And what happened was, the neuro, since the turn of the 21st century, neuroscientists have had a fantastic time looking with all the, all the new um, imaging apparatus, looking at all aspects, parts of the brain that are active in different activities. Um, when they're looking at these different activities, say a maths problem or something, they put people in the fMRI and look at what part of the brain is being active. The resting state of the human brain is the is the beginning of those tests, really. Someone then said, what's happening in the resting state of the mm. human brain? And they found the brain has not got a resting state. They found, they discovered this new network, actually, called the default 
mode network. And this is like a network, it's a highly evolved network for our social interactions apparently. It's like a, it's like it's a, become in the domain of social neuroscience. It's our social brain, if you like. They mm. found there are certain hubs that are very active when we're thinking about our social lives, our own self, our self-life, our self-narrative, our history, our self-esteem ties into it. Our memories come into it. And again, are these thoughts that we'll be conscious of, or are these sort of thoughts that are or, or processing that's yes. going on well, in the background? A lot of it is. It's called intrinsic activity of the human brain as well. Actually, the brain becomes, I say, more active. Actually, they say than even doing some other activities. So it's called intrinsic activity, and they call it's called social thinking. Basically, it's self-induced thinking. It's it's intrinsic thinking. Mm-hmm. It's not deliberate. It's it's the brain. It's as if we, our social worlds are so complex in human life that we need kind of every moment we can get almost to be thinking about our social problems. Like, did I when last time I spoke to Bob was that the right thing I said? And we kind of we're quite self-critical about mm-hmm. it and stuff. We kind of we have to kind of criticize ourselves a little bit to say, well, did I do that right? And we worry about this. We found They found that people with depression actually uh, have an overactive default mode network. In other words, they're too critical of themselves most a lot of the time. So it's, it's intrinsic thinking. It's self-induced thinking. It's the kind of thinking, that, the thoughts that you feel when you're starting to meditate you know, when you're starting to try to meditate, those of you who have tried this can experience this. You feel, you see thoughts going past. This is, these are those. These are the thoughts of the default mode network. They're usually about our own life, about how we're getting on and things like that. So self-referential thinking. It's called like a self-referential network. I mean, part of it is the is a um, prefrontal Cortex, which is, of course, we know very involved in planning our own life and and other parts that are to do with our memory of our life and so on. We have this, they've now discovered fairly recently, that we have this special social neuronal network that becomes active when we're not doing an activity. So the crucial thing to this discussion is they've discovered that this network is dampened and reduced when we are doing an activity, especially a creative activity, especially a flow activity that takes all of our attention. So if I'm playing Mozart, there's no way I can think of my own problems Mm. because my energy, my brain's energy, if you like, is going to the activity. That's really the essence of a flow activity. So I've I've recently started to learn to paint and I can say that I experienced that completely Mm because I've never done it before. It's something completely new, but Mm -hmm. I turn around, I'm like, two and a half hours have gone? Where have they gone? I'm completely absorbed by this process. There's a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Mm -hmm. I've been Mm -hmm. working my way through it about learning to draw. Mm -hmm. And in that, the the author talks about exactly this, Mm -hmm. and um, she calls it right brain thinking, but but that Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, losing track of time and and just Mm -hmm. getting completely absorbed into the Mm -hmm. task that you're doing. Yes, that's right, yeah. I, mean, I think it's important to remember that the sort of being conscious of how we present ourselves, mm-hmm. 
is important in our social life that we do need to correct ourselves and true i mean i'm not saying um, at all not so, there's, yes there's no suggestion mm. and uh, i don't want it to sound Vital like that, function, isn't it? that yes. Yes. yes i don't want it to sound at all we should be absolutely thrilled we've got this default mode network or it's also called a self-awareness network we're absolutely thank you for evolving <laughs> us like this because it's we can it enables us to do our complex social yeah. engagements without judging each other like mm. um, theory of mind and empathy without those skills and without this incredible system of the spindle cells and, you know, these mirror cells, that the neurons and everything that enable us to do this. Is, it's highly complex and highly evolved. It's a great system. Thank you, though, for reminding me that the, one of the main crucial things we need to discuss now is why it's calming to have this default mode network reduced. You know, that's the essence that I've been trying to struggle with. Why does self-forgetting feel so great? Why do we like... So many people report delight at forgetting themselves for a little while. For example, going to see a movie and being distracted for a couple of hours and so, you know, even that entertainment. Why do we... Why do human beings love that so much? And the answer that I've found... In, I've been using the history ideas methodology for this and tracking how this has been forming, is that one aspect of the default mode network is this, the social threat response, which is fairly new discovery, showing that it's 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 a bit your point, Tracy, a little bit that you reminded me of just before that when we're thinking about ourselves, it's. It's a bit stressy, or it can be, like people say, giving a public talk, they'd rather die. Some people say, I'd rather die than give a public, the talk in public. You know, you say a talk at a wedding or something, people get very, very nervous about it because we're on show, aren't we? We're, we're vulnerable mm. when we're putting ourselves towards an audience. And a lot of people find that very vulnerable. We're vulnerable to that because we can make a mistake, can't we? We can be not liked. Human beings have a great need to be liked and this is nothing to be ashamed of because if if we don't like each other we probably won't collaborate so well together and we kind of do activities to be liked. Remember how our health um, students when they go on a placement know how exhausted they get in the first week or some of a new placement because they're moment by moment figuring out are they doing well and it's they're exhausted and they're stressed because you know that's that part of Constant them is exactly, exactly yeah. yeah so to relieve ourselves from that for a little while uh, reduces the the activity in the amygdala and all of that so and i think with older people as their roles reduce you know if they you give up work and so on the need to be liked and socially engaged mm-hmm. with their peers mm-hmm. will be i think be very conscious on mm-hmm. yes, and they'll have a lot of time to think about that I and think, they're often time. forming new groups and that that's yeah. true so that would often be their default mode network if you like would often be kind of more active mm-hmm. in a way when they're forming mm-hmm. new groups especially mm-hmm. active when we're with new people new yeah. groups and that fits in with what the lady was saying about it being her the, the swimming in particular in this case being her raison d'etre yes yeah mm-hmm. let's go on yes. and Play her a bit more. Hmm. I, w- I worked up to the, again to the age of 70. Though not so much, obviously, in the last few years, but I did film and television makeup, so I was, it was freelance, and so I, was, I loved it. I didn't want to retire. I have a lot of regrets, really a lot of regrets. I can't, sw- I can't swim at all now. When I've, this, this, the first time I noticed it was about a year ago. I was abroad, and I got into the water, and I, I pushed off, ready to swim as I normally do, 
and I suddenly found I couldn't. I couldn't coordinate my upper body and my lower body. I was I was doing totally different things. It was a very frightening experience. Mm. And it was something I didn't know what to do about. I then worked at it, and I gradually managed to do a few more strokes because I wasn't going to give up that easily. But it was it's devastated me, frankly. Very unhappy when I think that I can't do these things. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that does link so well, doesn't it, to the identity. Mm. So that when we, we do get, it's part of our identity, isn't it, what we do. And it defines things us. we, yeah, they do define, yes, we are. Um, you know, you could have a T-shirt, we are what we do, or something <laughs> like that, but not necessarily, because a lot of people, of course, it depends what you describe what is doing, yeah. you know, because you can have things aren't physically doing, mm. you know. But uh, So I think, in a way... Um, Unfortunately, I think the arts um, and skills have been a little bit um, reduced in our uh, importance in, you know, we know that to keep developing skills is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Maybe take up an instrument late in life. Why not? It's fantastic. Or as we all know, the research into singing is just mind-blowing. The research, the positive nature that I think it's like we're born to be creative. We're born to be artistic if you like although a lot of us don't have confidence you know actually i think it's that drawing of the right on the right side of the brain that actually says how i'm afraid a lot of our artistic uh, enjoyment is dampened in childhood when we we get too self-critical actually mm, what, we've, talk about that what we've just yeah. what we've just drawn doesn't look exactly like what i wanted it mm. to look like and we stop doing it but people say well just keep just draw a bottle now and again or something and keep developing your skills there's so many skills we don't you know that it can be enjoyable and mm. that's exactly how i felt as a child actually yeah. I was like yes. i can't draw i can't draw yes. that perfectly and that, that's why i've never done it until that's now that's right i yeah. know and actually my husband's an artist and he a lot of people say to him you know they people know that you need practice to make and play music so they say things like oh you know but or but people say to him sorry well, I wish I could draw like that. And he will say, well, yeah, you could if you practised for 50 years. You know, <laughs> you, you know, it, it doesn't come... People think they know music has to be practised, but they think drawing must come instantly. But if only more of us drew, it would be fun, actually. We, we are all natural at it, mm. actually, but we kind of we, we repress it. Not. There's certain cultures in the world, isn't there, that, that singing is promoted yes. as an activity mm. and... Therefore, people do, and the idea mm. of not being able to sing is just mm. not a not mm. a thing, like not being able to draw. Whereas, mm. in our culture, yes. it's not necessarily promoted, yeah. and so you know That's you right. do feel that sometimes you know you're conscious about singing, or yeah. you can't sing, or you can't yeah. draw. Whereas, actually, it's too as you say, you can. Yeah. yeah, and even with dance, you know, they've shown that people, even you know, with dementia, that they get involved in dancing, social dancing, especially. It's just their their well being just enhances enhanced so mm. greatly. Yeah. Another thing that um, people report when they do, they learn, say, a musical instrument or something, is they do pr- they do report even kind of a transcendental, or even a change in consciousness of of feeling related to like a spiritual enhancement. Some of them feel more uh, peace in the world. Even they feel part of the bigger picture. It's like mm-hmm. a spiritual experience. So, so it seems to be that we do enjoy having some self-forgetting time, as we've said earlier. So we can go to movies or probably that's why TV is so nice, you know, so popular because we can, we don't have to be thinking about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And lots of humans doing a lot of different activities to, to do this. 
if we don't, it's like as if we deliberately have a little bit of time out from our overthinking about ourselves, you know, thinking about the self with the big S, really. We just need a little bit of relief. It's a fantastic system, but we need a little bit of relief from it from time to time. So we've developed all these different ways of doing that. And may I add just one fun things that are coming out? Because, you know, there's it's like going full circle, uh, Tracy, you, that, um, you know, there's the um, an article in the British, British Medical Journal in the just a few weeks ago about bringing origami back, oh, I saw that. Back, yeah. back into into hospital wards because people are lying there bored doing nothing basically you could read what you could read into that is that they're lying there with the overactive in a way defense mode, default mode network and the success of the coloring in books which are, people have become millionaires by producing I presume and in Holland, they're doing they're using virtual reality to divert because I think the idea of diversion and distraction from our own thinking about the self with a big S, me, me, me kind of stuff, using virtual reality in a pain burns ward has been shown to be as potent or more potent they're looking at now than some medication. So, yeah. I what, think what yeah. you were saying about dementia, there's a huge amount of research now about the benefits of activity in dementia and well-being. Mm. Yes. So that's very exciting. Mm. Yeah. I think, mm. I think exactly. it really feels like this is the way forward for a lot of what we're trying to do in the future. Mm. I think so. And I think there's a lot more to discover about. Mm. It's, uh, it's real, the neurological effects. Mm. Of, uh, and I think there's things that we can all do, aren't there, on a day-to-day basis in our hospital wards, in our uh, looking after patients in, in care homes, in the community, about trying to promote activities that, mm. that allow people to get into this flow state. Absolutely. Things like origami, things like drawing, mm. things like music and singing. And I think there's, there's big research going on in Denmark at the moment with people with um, long-term um, cancer care and in hospices. It's interesting that in hospices creative activities are becoming more and more into the fore. And um, because mm. it's it, even if people haven't been so-called creative or they don't identify with being creative in their past life, previous, you know, up till now, they love, even at, towards the end of life, to engage in their real self, you know, mm. to engage their real, their real inheritance, if you like, mm. of, mm. of um, artistic expression. It's, it's, a very, it's very optimistic, I think. So that's our sort of sketched out overview of well-being as we get older. It's been really interesting. It's been really interesting. I've really enjoyed that. And we will put some of those references in the show notes. Um, So if you're interested and this sort of sparks an interest, then... you want to go and read some more... Go to the show notes. Yeah. And they're on the web. Anything else we think of, we'll put in there as well. And the show notes are on the website, which is... www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk and we're also on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. And we're on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast. The MDT podcast. And now it is the time of the week for it our is. quiz. This is the catchly titled MD Teaser. This is an MDT item guessing game. So I think it's my turn to go first this week. Okay. Here. Mostly because I've turned the, the clue cards over already. And so I have seen the, the first clue. Okay, all right. So I have an item that I'm going to try and get Joe to guess and a series of words that I'm not allowed to use in getting her to guess these. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, we're ready? Go. So this is something that you would use both 
in the community, at home and in hospital. It's to do with a condition that is kind of related to what you eat and drink. Speech and language. No. And what you would do is you would take a piece of your body and you would put it into this machine and it would give you a reading. And the reading would tell you how much of this piece of your body you had there. A pulse oximeter? No. Um... And it, it requires a bit that you, you're forever going to lose this piece of your body when you. This is an awful description, um, but the is words are really hard. Saliva testing? No, <laughs> um, it's red. What you're taking out of your body? Ah, uh, having a blood test. Yes, and you're putting it into a bottle, into, into a, a little machine that you might have in your pocket, and you could have at home. And in hospital, they have them in little boxes. They're often blue boxes, oh, and you open it, them up, and there's a oh blood sugar testing. Yes, glucometer. Yes. Minute that lapse. is that's difficult. A, yeah, that's so the longest. I wasn't allowed to use the words sugar, blood, diabetes, glucose, high, <laughs> low, sample, or lancet. Wow. Okay. Ready? Go. Uh, this is a type of imaging that you can do on the ward. Uh, it's loosely imaging. You can do it in the community as well. There is a specific machine. It's an ultrasound. No, um, you quite often have to borrow it from somewhere else because there aren't that many of them around. <laughs> is it a bladder scanner? It is a bladder scanner. <laughs> so, not allowed to say ultrasound, bladder, urine, constipation, catheter, retention, pain, probe, abdomen, or distended. Lovely. And that was 19 seconds, so Joe wins that one. Obviously. Uh, but we have a clue for you. Yes. And this is the final clue of for this sound. series. This is the sound. Have a listen. We'll play you the sound once again. What do you think that is? Drum roll. Drum roll. Do you want to say what it is? Okay, this is a macerator from one of the sluice rooms somewhere where we work. It's obvious now, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you very much for for listening. Yes. And Um, and thank you uh, to Tracy and Gaynor for coming today. Thank you very much much for having us. Mm. Um, And that's it for series three. But fear not, we will be back with Series 4 in the not-too-distant future. The list of topics for Series 4 is on the website now, so go and have a look. If you would like to contribute, if you would like to send us um, suggestions for things that we should include about those episodes, please do drop us a line. And you can contact us through Twitter at MDT underscore podcast. You can email us through our website if you go to www.hearingaidpodcast.org.uk in the top right-hand corner, there's a link to email us. And also in the top right-hand corner is a link to subscribe to our mailing list and then we'll send you an email every couple of weeks when the next episode comes out to save you having to search it out each time. Absolutely. MDT will reconvene in a little while. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.